Hey everyone, welcome to the Hometown Fresh podcast, the show that talks all things grocery, customer service, career development, and more. I'm Gracie, social media coordinator for Harps Food Stores, and today we'll be hearing from our assistant produce category manager, Joel Cottrell. Joel works with our very own Mike Roberts to ensure that Harps is operating sustainably, supporting local farmers, abiding by food safety protocol, and acting in alignment with company values for the benefit of all customers. Today we'll be talking about generational farming, local versus big ag, and the push that we're seeing for increased sustainability. How are you today, Joel? Good, good. How are you? Pretty good. Did you have a good weekend? Yep, busy, enjoying the summer. Did you do anything crazy? I just went to Silver City, rode a bunch of rides. Fun. Do you have any fun plans for this weekend? Nope, not really. Just trying to relax. Been a, we was at a farm tour event this uh, last week, so haven't got a chance to catch up on stuff around the house. So yeah, uh, just trying to relax. Hey, that's important. That's important. I love doing nothing on the weekends because it's <laughs> yeah. very rare that I get to. So yeah, sounds awesome. Okay, so today I want to talk a little bit about generational farming and supporting local businesses, and I feel like you have a lot of knowledge in that arena. But before we get started on that, just go ahead and give us a summary of your career and what you do here at the company. So I started back in 2007 as a uh, bagger, checker, stalker when I was 16. I've been here with the company ever since. I've moved through, I've probably been in almost any position in the store from bagger to uh, checker to not stalker to closing manager to grocery manager and to eventually where I'm at today. I have a pretty extensive uh, farming and agricultural background with my family. I have family members that's owned a 3,500-acre row crop farm in northeast Arkansas. I grew up around cattle farming a lot and animal farming and then went through the FFA and all that stuff. And then I went through to get a degree in Arkansas at Arkansas State University with an emphasis of agriculture and farming and marketing. So with that background, that led me to get the assistant produce category position here. And um, with that, I tried to take care of most of the local farmer needs. Our local program, I head up that. I also just support Mike and Mike Roberts, our vice president of produce operations, and then Josh Record, our category manager, and just whatever they need with buying and just general store operations for our produce departments. Awesome. So it sounds like you've done it all. You kind of have a very versatile background um, Mm -hmm. as far as ag goes. And even you said marketing too? Yeah, it's ag marketing. So kind of, you know, Read futures, stuff of that nature, just get the product basically from what we call from farm to table. Okay. More of my emphasis was on row crop. And then when I got into this position, I started learning about the special, what we call it special commodities, which is fruits and vegetables and stuff of that nature. Um, learning how to get that from farm to table. It's okay. been a really, this past six years has been really eye-opening on what uh, the United States and surrounding areas can produce and grow here yeah. efficiently. So you said you grew up on a farm or your family has, um, or like, is it your immediate family? Yeah. My aunt and uncle owned a 3,500 acre farm for row cropping. Okay. It was my uncle's family who started it. My family worked on the farm on okay. that same farm for multiple generations until the two families kind of merged together. And, you know, uh, we've been part of that. My dad's worked on it on and off. Uh, I've worked on it some, been That's around it some. In Northeast Arkansas, I was doing my ag degree and then kind of being around all that at the same time. So it's kind of helped helped each other out. That's really cool. So you keep saying row crop. Can you kind of explain what that means? So row crop is for basically anything in a row. It's like corn, soybeans, cotton, rice is thrown into there, even though it's not row. It's that kind of basic commodity stuff like textiles. Most of the corn grown in Arkansas is corn that's sold for either some textile use, animal use, or ethanol use. Okay. A little bit of ethanol use. That's more north part of the United States that does most of that. So, You said you've also been around cattle some too? Yeah, uh, with FFA when I was in high school. 
their pretty much focus was in a little town called Mountain View, Arkansas. That that's more of cattle country, more of livestock country, and okay. so um, got a lot of experience from friends and a little bit of family that dabbled in growing livestock. That's awesome. So we're going to talk about generational farming today. What generation would you consider yourself a farmer? Because you said your family has a farm. So would you consider yourself part of a generational farming family? or An agricultural family, yeah, probably fourth, fifth generation agricultural family. Okay, yeah. Most of our family can be traced back from that area. I know if you just tracked some parts of my family that was direct line, I think it went to about third or fourth generation before it stopped. They stopped farmer operations, which is a trend right now that unfortunately Unfortunately, agriculture is seen, and that's like the big topic around generational farming is passing that farm from one person, from the, the mother and father to the son or daughter. Mm-hmm. And keeping that going, we're seeing a lot less of that in our culture field. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's sad because a little bit of that's going to more corporate farming corporate-owned farms, you know, by a big conglomerate more than just Jim Bob down the road that, yeah. you know, could be owned at a farm. Now it's controlled by bigger entities. So I actually, we're going to touch on that a little bit, but I want to read a statistic because I was very interested in this when I was preparing for this podcast. I looked it up, what percentage of the U.S. working population are farmers? And that percent falls at 1.03% of the working population Mm -hmm. are farmers. And then of that 1.03%, 8% of that is farmers under the age of 35 Right. Which is 0.000824% of the American population, which is a scary statistic. It is. Uh, Back when I was in learning about this in college, um, which was, uh, you know, 2012, 2013, somewhere in there, uh, the average person, so for one person that is involved with the agriculture industry, needs to be able to produce enough food or enough growth to feed 150 people. Per year? Per yeah, per year. So okay. one person that's involved. That's and that counts, you know, everybody in the, you know, retail, Aggie retail. I mean one thing we forget is that grocery stores is technically a little bit under that umbrella because it deals with food. Mm-hmm. But it's everybody in the agriculture industry should have to produce enough that gain to produce uh, feed hundred and fifty people. Which that was ten years ago now. So now that's probably doubled. So mm-hmm. it's probably about enough to produce up for to feed about 300 people at least by now and mm-hmm. that number continuously grows yeah. as more people leave the industry and then it's not all bad it's not like we're having these people leave this industry and then that's it it's just the final curtain on it there's a lot of mechanization and, and stuff of that that's helped a lot that where we don't need as much help Mm-hmm. And that's another kind of flip of that coin is that as mechanization grows, the need for labor decreases. And so sometimes you see these little farming towns, it's kind of dried up a little bit because they don't mm-hmm. need to kind of, la- the farmer doesn't need to kind of labor to produce the same amount that they used to be able to. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a little bit multifaceted when you look at how many people are involved in agriculture. I mean, obviously we need more. I think every industry needs more help. Mm-hmm. But um, as technology grows, hopefully that'll catch back up to where one person doesn't have to do so much to make things go. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it is important to preserve the family farm operation as opposed to everything going mechanized or corporate or, right. you know, I think that is extremely valuable. And another statistic I read, and I might butcher it, <laughs> but I think it said something like farming in the United States peaked around 1955 mm-hmm. with a total of, I think, 7 million 
farm operations. Mm -hmm. And today that number has decreased to 2 million Mm -hmm. and it's continuing to decrease. So that, I mean, that makes me really sad. And and we are going to talk about a little bit of that more, but no, that's cool that you have so much knowledge on that and you're able to kind of tell us, you know, what's the difference and that sort of thing. So how would you define a family farm and what's the difference between a first generation farmer or a fifth generation? And this is more of an opinion more than the fact, but uh, how I define a family farm is someone who uh, is a farm that's kind of kept things within a generational line or something to that extent. I mean, it's granddad who bought the farm and it's the son that's come in or the daughter that's come in who to run a farm and then it's their kids that's going to come in to keep supporting that or the cousin or, you know, it's a farm or a business that the whole family is involved in. Mm -hmm. And usually, you know, we put such a positive connotation on family farms because usually those family farms, I mean, needless to say, that's their bread and butter, but it's also what they're passionate in. You know, when you have the whole family involved in one particular aspect or one particular business, that business can thrive, mm-hmm. especially when you have everybody on the same page. So that's, I think that's what the more of the reason why, you know, family farms have been, you know, such sacred businesses uh, in the United States. And plus, it's a little bit of the American dream. I mean, America mm-hmm. was built on farmers yeah. to a certain extent. And um, so just to have that, you know, generational line come through, it's good. That's yeah. that's kind of what I consider a family farm, which there are larger family farms out there. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's not the just the one to, or the 10 to 20 acre farm. There's mm-hmm. farmers out there that has thousands of acres. Um, there are several YouTubers that I watch all the time and they got thousands upon thousands of acres and they're like fourth generation, fifth generation farming or third generation farming. And so it's been passed on to, you know, parent to son as they went through. So don't, so a lot of people think, oh, it must be this small little farm that they're going to go up to the farmer's market and sell, you know, (laughs) six tomatoes on a weekend. But no, (laughs) some of the, some of the farms that we visited a couple weeks ago, I mean, they're, they're large operations Mm -hmm. that's been owned by several generations of one family. Yeah, generational farms are rare. Like, they're, you don't see them anymore. They're dwindling. But specifically, I wanted to talk a little bit about first-generation farmers mm-hmm. because I know that there are a lot of people my age going into ag mm-hmm. who want to run their own, you know, dairy farm, cattle farm, crop farm, like, whatever it is. Oh, Logan Courtney, for example, with Courtney Farms. He okay. has the robotic milking system yeah. in Oklahoma. But he's, a, I think, a fifth-generation farmer, but he's first-generation dairy. So... Like, I guess his ancestors did dairy and then they dropped off and just did crop and cattle. And mm-hmm. then he brought it back into the family. And like, that's just kind of a cool thing. Steered it back into the dairy. Um, yeah. One, I think probably what I think everybody pictures or what, what I think a goal is. Uh, an example of that is there's a first generation farm in, in the Carolinas and it was an existing farm. Uh, these farmers had, you know, got to the point where, you know, hey, there's no one here that's going to take up the mantle. I'm thinking about selling it or putting it all in the rental land or something of that nature. Well, one of the farm hands said, hey, you know, I don't have a family farm. I've been working for you for a few years, you know, because I like this industry. How about I buy it from you? And this man-wife couple, of, they were able to do that. They were able to have the financial, which is the biggest hurdle, yeah. of the financials to be able to do that. And so they bought the farm. And so really, technically, they're first generation. Yeah. And uh, they're relatively young farm back in 2000. I think this happened about 2009, 2008, somewhere around in there. And they're, like I said, first generation. These people have never been farmers before. No one in their family. I mean, they can be tied to agriculture to some extent, but, you know, it was, they are the first generation. 
Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, I've gotten several calls from some first generation farmers this year too. And all the best for them, like I said, that financial aspect to get off the ground is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the biggest hurdle that most farmers face and there are people who want to be farmers face. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are several, uh, you know, U.S. Department of Ag's got several uh, programs that help with that. There is actually a uh, foundation in Northwest Arkansas that helps, you know, you rent own. So you rent a piece of land, rent a few acres, and eventually you will own those acres if you stay in a program. Mm-hmm. And that will give you enough acreage to, you know, I think it's up to 10 acres that can, especially for special crops. Special yeah. crops like to, if it's like strawberries, tomatoes, you know, lettuce, whatever have you, um, it give you enough acres to get off the ground. Okay, and then yeah. Not necessarily maybe expand in that one spot, but at least get your business up and going. Let you go through the learnings and pitfalls that you know a startup business. Because at the end of the day, we have to you know farm. We have to figure a farm as a business, right? It has mm-hmm. to meet a certain budget, meet a certain you know guidelines to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, pay for itself. So you know they these this organization gives these not gives but brings they own these new farmers 10 acres to start off mm-hmm. and then they can expand from there that's so cool there's several stuff around arkansas that can help and in other states too they there are several other programs that are kind of like that rent to own stuff i know of a row crop farmer that is actually renting off of another farm and started up there and they actually was renting it's kind of one of those it's kind of like a kind of like a hermit crab situation they kind of just kind of stepped into all the equipment and everything and you know worked out a deal for the person who was going out and they're considered a first generation farmer because you know no one in their family's done it mm-hmm. so that there's several instances like that yeah that's cool i'm glad you said all of that because i was about to ask you if you knew of any resources to help first generation farmers mm-hmm. just in case anyone's listening so yeah i have a lot of respect for first ends just because it is so hard to get started um and it's hard anyways right but yeah. especially <laughs> if you're starting from scratch it can be really difficult so we've talked a little bit about family farms but can you talk to me a little bit about commercial farms and where they stand in comparison to family farms and where that's going right. and taking the industry so commercial farms, I mean, if you give a more of a textbook definition, it's a farm that's owned by some entity greater than an LLC or LLC or bigger. So um, which, as I kind of stated previously, I mean, it could have been a family that morphed their farm. They got to the big enough to the point where they can morph their farm into a corporate farm. They're the CEO now instead of the owner. So there's a little bit of like guideline that you have to kind of watch there. Now, there are farms that are owned by conglomerates. There are farms that are owned by companies that you wouldn't even expect. There's a lot of vertical integration, uh, especially in um, certain producing fields. Like there's some retailers that own the whole supply chain. And when we're talking about the whole supply chain, it's from the farm to the shelf. Mm. That, you know, retailers own every piece of that. Um, That's crazy. And then there's a certain chicken manufacturer that, you know, has certain farms that they own completely from start to finish, which those those companies can partner with farmers too. But there are some places out there that, like I said, they're owned by a corporate entity. Usually what corporate entities want to do there is want to own every piece of the manufacturing process mm-hmm. to get product out and secure supply lines. i do not not sure if the energy industry does that very much. I think they do uh, for ethanol and certain crops of that nature. But um, but yeah, when, so when you call, talk about corporate farm, that's kind of the examples 
okay. people tend to think of. Yeah. So does Harps have any corporate farms that we, you know, own and kind of control the stock or the market? Or do we solely source from like family farms? No, we do not own any farms at all. Okay. We partner with uh, AWG to procure most of our uh, produce. And they work with a wide variety of different types of farm and different farming aspects. Some of them are family, some of them are more bigger. So it just depends on what, how best, you know, we can feel that need to get the products to the shelves. There are several large farms out there that large companies, kind of like Dole would be the you know one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're so big that, you know, they do control a lot of different aspects of it. And um, there are certain companies like that that want to be vertically integrated to the point where they control everything. Yeah. But there are a lot of farms out there that we partner or, you know, that we have in our stores. There are family farms there, you know, like I said, they're on a bigger scale. There's one in South Arkansas that comes to mind, you know, they're on a pretty good size scale and they can supply AWG and us. Mm-hmm. With the amount, you know, of Arkansas tomatoes and Arkansas grown cucumbers and stuff like that and cabbage. I'm taking a little bit of a different direction, but there's a trend right now in people. And I don't know, I say trend because I just see it on social media being talked about a lot more. I feel like a lot of people are turning to sustainable farming for their own families, not any kind of big scale farm. They're not taking it to the farmer's market. They're not even, you know, they're not trying to sell their product wholesale or for retailers. But I feel like a lot of people are turning to like growing their own food, you know, like substance. Farming. Substance farming. Thank yeah, you. I couldn't farmer. remember. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and see what your thoughts were on it and if you had any resources for people who want to farm that way. Yeah. Sustenance farms or the farm, you know, or the garden, however your way you can produce your own food and textiles and stuff of that nature. They uh, are a trend that's been kind of growing mm-hmm. in Arkansas and other places around the world that can grow a garden. I know my grandmother and my mother try to grow, I even myself try to grow a garden every year. You know, like, like I said, I'm, I don't don't have the touch they do they can mm-hmm. produce bigger gardens where I, I think it's more of a time thing for me but uh i can make peppers and you know that's about it yeah these type of farms they are like you said they're just producing enough to feed a, a small group of people or themselves one group of people that comes to mind is the amish they do a lot of that and they are very good at sustaining themselves with their own parts of agriculture as for any assistance outside as for the, like the usda there are several workshops that the arkansas extension service or university of arkansas extension service will put out there to help educate people on how to grow fruits and vegetables for their own consumption. Uh, where a lot of people don't have a lot of experience at is, you know, how to preserve, mm-hmm. preserve all that. Like canning their vegetables and things like that. Yeah, canning their vegetables Storage. and everything. So, because, you know, you can grow it during the summer, but Arkansas only has five, or less than that, four viable months that can grow. Um, unless you start bringing potted tomatoes on the front porch, you know, or an mm-hmm. area where you can, or like a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only so much time within that year to be able to uh, grow enough to sustain yourself. But there are a lot of, I mean, I know a few people who only do sustainable far- or sustenance farming. And uh, they do substance hunting and stuff of that nature. And, that's awesome. And they really are, you know, I guess what you would call off the grid. Yeah, so. that's cool. What is sustainable farming and how does it differ from standard farming practices? Sustainable farming, a lot of the misconception is is that a lot of people think that agriculture in general can be wasteful of when it's actually the exact opposite. A farmer in any aspect wants to use the resources available to them in the best way and most efficient, sustainable way that they can. It doesn't benefit them to do anything else. 
Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's going to be bad actors. You, you can kind of see that they're probably not, you know, in it for the long haul anyway. Mm-hmm. But sustainable farming is just the acts that we can do to make every piece of uh, resource go further, more responsibly. Sustainable farming practices, you know, some of the ones that come to mind is like no-till. So tilling up the ground can cause aeration in the ground uh, where it, a windstorm can come up and pick it up and move it. Mm-hmm. That happened in the 30s. We learned from that and said, hey, look, you know, maybe we can do different practices that will preserve this ground a little bit better than what we have been doing because we just didn't know. And then it's just uh, practices like that. You reusing water, for example, you know, collecting water that goes on to different, you know, for irrigation and stuff like that, making it where it's safe for people to use. Or there's a farm that comes to mind with that that collects all the runoff into ponds, holding ponds. And while that water is not suitable for fresh fruits and vegetables use, they'll use that water to irrigate crops that are more textile use like corn, dry corn or stuff of that nature. So for sustainable farms, that's the big push. It's kind of a little bit more of a buzzword, but it's a big push for most of ag to, like I said, use every available resource the best and most responsible way that we can. So that's where that's coming from. And um, like I said, farmers have been doing this for years already. I mean, it just has a word for it now. It just has, exactly. It has (laughs) a, it has an explanation for it now. It has a, you know, kind of a, you know, we like to put labels on things. Well, now it's got a label, Yeah. you know, and that is one thing that, you know, I've been to several farms this year, and that was one thing that they made sure that they were showing that, like, look, we are responsible. We are using water. And, you know, then that doesn't stop at the farm either. It goes to packing sheds and different areas, too, especially when it comes, like, to water and land use. We're being as, as responsible as we can. And here's why, and here's how we're doing it. Gap stuff, good agricultural practices, certifications, mostly focus on food safety aspects of farms. They also do have sustainability aspects with them, too. Mm-hmm. Make sure that we're just not running sprinklers or pivots all the time and not actually seeing where that water goes and, you know, right. not just being as much efficient as we can be. Yeah. Well, and I think there is, especially since there are not as many farms and farmers as there used to be, I think there's a lot more pressure on the people who are still doing it, who are sticking it out and they're more visible because, I mean, there's not as many of them. And so people are looking to you and being like, well, how are you doing it? And, you know, we have a lot of people nowadays who, like you said, think that ag is destroying the environment when actually if it's being done right it's improving the environment and improving the lives of others in turn yeah i mean i'm glad they have a word for it now so they i mean <laughs> so it can be explained i mean you know yeah, yeah it's kind of like well, why are you doing that well we're trying to be sustainable mm-hmm. um and like i said there, there are several practices out there that it's already been kind of in the works that we that farming's been wanting to do or has been doing it for a while it's just now it's got a label on it yeah You mentioned to me that there tends to be varying consumer reactions to local farming versus big ag. So what did you mean by that? So usually um, a biggest example is, and I won't mention the name, but there's a certain restaurant out there that really likes to focus on, well, we do all local stuff and small farmers. And So um, you want to call them out, though, on the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to call them <laughs> I'm out. i Everybody could probably figure out who it is. But, um, is it a, wait, can I ask, is it a local restaurant or is it a chain? It's a chain. Mm, okay, sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah, so they, they, and they went in so far as to, they, they put out a lot of stuff about how we only source responsible local, smaller type farms instead of these big, huge conglomerates of, mm-hmm. of farms. And the people's reaction to that, and, and that just stems from, I mean, this probably started back in the 90s where people started to ask, hey, where's my food coming from? Mm-hmm. And what practices are being used to produce my food? Well, when you, 
look at big ag or quote unquote big ag or larger farms. And like I said, some of those farms are family farms because mm-hmm. they're owned by family. But some of these bigger, larger farms, more mechanized farms, they're like, oh, well, they're doing bad stuff. They're pumping different things, you know, chemicals and whatnot into these poor animals and making them more than what they ever should have been. And that's just certainly, while getting to a big debate, it's not all what you see. Big agriculture practice, uh, big <laughs> agriculture practices are the same as small agriculture practices, but just done on a different scale. So people have gotten a big negativity on bigger farms and bigger mm-hmm. stuff. They just think that these are just these big wasteful entities that do whatever they want to save a buck. When, mm-hmm. as, like I said earlier, it's just not the case. Yeah. We only have a certain amount of resources on this earth, and we have to use them as responsibly as they can. And has the Department of Agriculture, could they have done a better job at maybe combating that? Probably. Mm-hmm. Just consumer education. The advent of YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, really big TikTok. There are so many, and I encourage anybody who's listening to this to um, go to those YouTubers and stuff and, and kind of see how it actually is. Mm-hmm. And they will show you a day in their life. And there's a cattle farmer or a dairy farmer that I love watching. He's just so cool because he explains every little bit. He's like, here's why we do to do this. This is why we do to do this. This is what's in this so we can have this. He loves his cows. He's like, at the end of the day, they are animals that we are using, but we want to treat them right. They only produce the best when they're happy and healthy. Yeah. And we want to make sure that, you know, all these animals are happy and healthy. And it's the same for plants, too. We don't want to do something that's going to, I'm not saying a plant has feelings, but, I mean, my, we don't know. <laughs> but, you know, we, we want to do the healthier and the happier that plant is or animal or anything in our culture, the better it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And the better it's going to be for us. Yeah. So, without going too far in a rabbit hole, that's where we kind of need to combat this horrible big ag. I mean, that doesn't yeah. really exist. Big ag doesn't really exist. Yeah, but the term big ag has become such like it has such a negative connotation I think for the consumer so I'm glad we're talking about it and kind of combating that and while you were talking one of the things that was popping in my mind was the average consumer when you pay for something that is your hard-earned money like that's your time that's your money that you're spending on something to take home with you let's say you buy a new phone I'm not gonna buy a new phone and then just start throwing it at walls and stuff right same with farmers they're not gonna buy livestock and then mistreat it because I mean that's that's money for them right and obviously it's an animal and you want to treat the animal right too and I love cows and cows are cute and they're sweet and whatever (laughs) but also it is for their business owners so they're not gonna mistreat their product is that a bad way for me to say that well I think it is what it is right Mm -hmm. it said it earlier farms are a business Mm -hmm. at the end of the day no matter how much we want to fantasize or you know like fantastical it or whatever I don't even know if that's weird but um you know build it up in our minds as this wonderful nothing can go wrong place at the end of the day it's a business we want them to thrive to feed us mm-hmm. and we have to have them to thrive to feed us and you know more restrictions or anything we put on them unnecessarily restrictions that we put on these practice what point does it stop being able to produce this for us mm-hmm. like i said if anybody listens to this, go to youtube type in farm something and millennial farmer he's a good he does row crop and stuff um, there's several dairy farms and stuff and these guys and gals are just awesome they explain everything and parts that people can understand mm-hmm. and they don't hide anything they show it all they're like look this doesn't do me any good just showing you the good parts it's, well i want you to see the good and the bad yeah 
the dairy farmer, I can't think of his name. He had a cow that it stopped producing and it got to the point where, look, I, as a business owner, I had to make a hard decision and sell this cow to be processed. Now, mm-hmm. I will, I sold it to somebody who I know, he said, I know we'll use every part and be respectful and do it the most humanely way we can muster. Because mm-hmm. he's like, you know, I'd love to let her sit out and live the rest of the day, her days. But, you know, then they have a business to run. I have to make sure that her contribution helps the rest of the herd. Definitely. What process do farmers have to go through in order to perform on a commercial level and sell their product as a retail commodity? So one of the things that when I deal with smaller farms or local or just starting out farms, probably the best way to say this, is that I think the end goal for any starting out farmer should be to get to the point where they could start selling to warehouses. To get that economy as a size and scale to where they can get every year is not a struggle for them, right? Mm-hmm. So some of the steps, while I can't give an outline, one of the things I can do is just best way I can say is to focus on your economies of size and scale. And what that I mean by that is if you're a 10 acre farm, you need to produce the one thing that's going to make you the most bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. Around here in Arkansas, what's Arkansas known to be grown for? Tomatoes, blueberries, corn a little bit. Don't um, we produce a lot of rice? Am I wrong there? We do. Okay. We do. And then if you want to be that farmer, if you want to be that row cart farmer, then soybeans is mm. probably one thing I'm going to be growing because, you know, I haven't checked the futures right now, but used to. They used to be, you know, them and cotton used to be the creams of the crop, which, you mm-hmm. know, Arkansas has been known to grow a lot of rice. They actually grow a ton of rice for the United States. But as for a specialized farm, if we want to kind of veer down that path, as a farmer, I want to make sure that I'm picking the right commodities that will sell. Mm-hmm. Like I said, in those, and I usually tell most people, it's going to be those commodities as Arkansas is known for. Watermelons is a good one. Mm-hmm. One of the things that some people tend to do is some of the specialized crops, like this off-brand of zucchini squash that no one's ever heard of. I'm like, hey, that's great. Glad you grew it, but I can't sell it because mm-hmm. it's just not, people are not looking for it. But if you had a nice Arkansas tomato sitting there, I mean, that can be sold. So I do have a question. I had a customer comment on a post the other day and ask if we would be selling strawberry onions do you strawberry know onions? do you know what that is i don't um, have any clue i never have heard of strawberry onions and i will say that there is a type of onion out there called a ruby onion it's a red onion that is grown in vidalia around uh, that area mm-hmm and it's a lot sweeter of onion. It's a little bit more mild, not as pungent, what how a red can be. So Maybe we could be talking about those. I mean, there and there could be strawberry. They're coming up with so many variety uh, <laughs> hybrids. I mean, the biggest famous one of right now is cotton candy grapes. You know, those taste yeah. like cotton candy. I mean, they just taste like pure sugar to oh me. Oh my but. gosh, my mom eats the heck out of those. Yeah, <laughs> you want a cotton candy grape? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, and so and it could be something like you know that kind of hybrid. Mm-hmm. That's probably what they're talking about. I'm not sure when the rubies will be able to be available. Um, there has been some crop issues with the South Georgia region right now. So I don't, I don't know when they would be available. But let's just say this. If we can get a hold of the rubies, we will. <laughs> so I'm going to take a little bit of a turn really quick. What is H-2A labor and what role do these employees play in the ag industry, specifically in produce? Okay. So H2A, I'm not sure what the acronym stands for. I tried to look that up this morning. Couldn't find anything on it. But H2A is a migrant worker program. It's, let me say, a legal migrant worker program. It's something that the United States State Service and Department of Ags come together. And what it does, it's a great benefit as to supplement labor. One of the things that for specialty crops in particular, such as bell peppers, is the one thing that comes to my mind. It's labor intensive. You know, there is no machine that puts them in the ground. There's Mm -hmm. no machine that pulls them out of the ground. It is all 
all hand labor. And the same thing for watermelons. There's not a machine that puts that together. And so you got to have, it's all hand-picked stuff. And so H2A allows a farmer to go outside the United States for that workforce. They come in more primarily one that I've heard of is either South America or Mexico. And these guys come over here with documentation, everything. They work for about 10 months. The farmer pays them a grid upon contracted wage. Those are also set by, you know, uh, United States Department of Labor. Very controlled on that. Mm-hmm. Um, the farmer does, this is a little bit different, as the farmer does have to provide housing and amenities for these workers. Mm-hmm. They're able to work 10 years out of the month, or 10 months. Huh? 10 years out ten of the year, month. 10 months out of the year, rather, uh-huh. for different growing seasons and stuff of that nature. And then they have to spend, you know, two months, at least two months uh, at home. Okay. Without this program, specialized agriculture in the United States would not exist. It is that important. Um, Just to talk about a little bit of the process from start to finish, you know, that farmer says, hey, you know, this is what I'm going to grow. This is how much I want to try to grow. Mm -hmm. This is how many jobs I need. So he posts those jobs in the United States. He has to first to look for, you know, United States people who are already here. Yeah. And once he can prove that says, hey, I've been out here, I've hired a little bit of people, but it's not filling up. Then he can go to the State Department and says, here's how many I'm going to need. Let's go find them. And mm-hmm. usually 95% of those workers are return workers. Mm-hmm. And about 85 to 90 percent of those workers are all in the same family family units it's the you know the dad and the brother and the uncle and and it's all a lot of it's repeat repeat mm-hmm. guys there's some guys that's been coming over here for years uh, same guy years and they mm-hmm. come here work send money you know back home mm-hmm. and then go home for a while and as the next season comes up they start up again really great group of individuals usually that participate in these programs uh, the farmer does have he said there are a few that I, he's like, you know, you get, I don't want to say attached them, but like they become, you know, like family. Yeah. Yeah. Like family. And it's going to be that, it's always that same guy that works for you for 10 plus years. Right. You know, you're kind of close to that person. Mm -hmm. There was an instance where there was one guy who was injured. He was an older injured. And he said, I can't come because I can't work. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, man, I'm going to find you something for you. Mm -hmm. He says, there's something you can do here, given how much you can work. And he says, you know, you've been there for me. I want to be here for you. That's so cool. And yeah, and he works. I mean, this person works. He's 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 doing something to his ability level, mm-hmm. but he works. And so it's like I said, I can't stress how important this program is to water and agriculture, and how much you know. There's farmers need these guys and gals. There's been a lot of turmoil with the things that are going on in the government right now that mm-hmm. is kind of messing with this a little bit. But like I said, these are important people that are here properly doing a work, doing a service, mm-hmm. and they are vital to what we have going on in agriculture. For our listeners, how can we shop more sustainably? How can we, uh, so shopping more sustainably, I mean, it's not so much as picking one farm that I know is doing better. I mean, obviously you vote for your dollar. Mm -hmm. So having information of where your fruits and vegetables come from is key to that. One of the things that we can do as a consumer is use the products we buy more efficiently. One of the things that Harps has been really impactful with and stuff of that nature is to come up with programs to make fruits and vegetables last longer naturally Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. When we can do that, there's the appeal process, which is a great, wonderful process that is safe. It's it makes avocados go a lot longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, not unnaturally long. I mean, you know, you don't have an avocado that's there for months on end, but yeah. you know, you might get an extra two, day or two out of it, and that mm-hmm. extra day or two makes all the difference. Yeah, there are some uh, other things that we can do into our departments. That there's actually some research into different kinds of. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry. We have construction going on at the office right now, <laughs> yeah. and something is, it sounds like Chewbacca. Yeah. I think it's just a truck backing up out there, but something was happening. Anyways, uh, continue. Uh, but there's some <laughs> stuff that we've been doing in our departments. Like, there's some research into, and this is going to sound sci-fi, but field harmonics that the medical field uses to disencourage bacteria growth. What is it? It's different types of, <laughs> there are certain types of fields and stuff that can, I guess you could call them sanitation fields, really. There's some stuff that prohibits the growth of bacteria. And there's some stuff that we can, that kind of like how copper helps your elbows and, you know, if you got a sprain get the copper fit it's got copper inside it helps what it's kind of like that technology I don't, fields like like yeah. grass dirt oh no 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 what are we talking like about it, right it's now a, it's a, a card that you can put in your pantry oh it's called the food freshness card you said field yeah because it emits a field like a electromagnetic oh. field oh okay i didn't know if you meant like dirt grass field <laughs> no, or like no 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 field yeah you like know, a, okay. like electromagnetic field that you know the um medical <laughs> unit industry has been using for years mm-hmm. to help uh, disencourage bacterial growth. Okay, got and Bacteria it. is the enemy of everything. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really done much there, but it has passed through the desk a couple times, and it's like, okay, hey, this is interesting. Okay, I for real, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to it, but I thought you were talking about, like, fields, like grass, dirt, that just has no bacteria in the dirt, like it's just some special fancy dirt. That's just what I thought you meant. No. <laughs> okay, we're talking about pantries. I got it. Yeah. I'm with you now. So those are things that uh, certain retailers can use to help with that, and that's a budding technology, and there's still more stuff to be thought about it, but it's just certain like that that certain retailers can use, and then just making sure things are clean, making sure our department's as clean as much as we can be, and just whatever we can do to extend the life of fruits and vegetables. Final question. How can consumers better support local farmers and business owners? Farmer's market is a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Looking for, especially in your local grocery store, things that say local, Arkansas tomatoes, local different fruits and vegetables. There is a, I believe, a U Local page that the Arkansas Department of Agriculture puts out, and they have a laundry list of farms and local businesses. There, you know, we can, like I said, vote with your dollar. And then also understand that the tomato that comes in from you a little short distance away won't be the same price as the tomato that comes from, like, Georgia mm-hmm. or uh, Alabama. And it goes kind of back to that economy is a size and scale thing. I can reduce more cheaper with better equipment, mm-hmm. right? Well, your local farmer may not have access to that. Mm-hmm. So things are, for their inputs, their going to put into plants and animals they're going to obviously need a little bit more for that Mm -hmm. right because they just don't have the resources that a bigger farm or a bigger entity may have so i guess what i mean by saying all that is that as a consumer vote local with your dollar and just be prepared like hey look i'm paying this premium to support my guy down the road Mm-hmm. to support that into you know that shop that small shop that might have a couple of agriculture items or just regular text items i mean there's several different industries in arkansas that are small yeah well do you have anything else to share with us today about anything that we've talked about no i mean i'm just sure there are loads of different discussions about this uh, agriculture is a somewhat of a hot ticket item hot button issue and obviously we didn't explain everything or didn't cover it all here so there's more to it than that parts is a local supporter we do what we can where we can mm-hmm. um sometimes it doesn't always work and that's just the way things are but like i said farmers markets that was probably the first place you can't support your local farmer 
Thanks for hopping on today, Joel. If you're still listening, we hope you enjoyed today's episode about generational farming, shopping local, and tending to the land in a sustainable way. To learn more about this subject, check out the description below for more information and be sure to submit any questions or comments to the email linked in the show notes. Don't forget to follow us on the Hometown Fresh channel and tune in next week for another great episode.